there's a rail company that is owned primarily by the French government owned its parent company, SNCF. It's bidding on the Purple Line project in Maryland, huge transportation contract with the state. And um, historians say that SNCF carried Jews and other Nazi prisoners to the French-German border on the way to concentration camps. And now there's critics, Democrats and Republicans in Congress, who say that the rail company under this company should be paying restitutions to the victims if it's going to be allowed to bid on a contract because it's U.S. taxpayer money. Is this something that President Obama will address with President Obama? That was CNN journalist Brianna Keeler in 2014 during a White House press conference. The story of the SNCF had hit such a fever pitch, reporters from major news outlets were wondering if President Obama was going to make Leo's case a priority during the French president's official state visit. Just a few short years ago, the legal team had struggled to get any interest for their efforts in D.C. Now, the tides had turned. This is Covering Their Tracks, the extraordinary story of a global corporation's denial of its history and how storytelling can be used to confront the past and achieve justice. I'm Matthew Slutsky. This is Episode 4, First Allies, and the battle for reparations is heating up. We last left off in 2011, more than a decade since Harriet Taman launched the uphill fight against the French National Railway, the SNCF, and 69 years since Leo Bretholtz jumped from one of SNCF's trains, deporting him towards Auschwitz and certain death. That very same company was now trying to win service contracts on a rail project near Leo's home in Baltimore, Maryland. First, there was the bid for the Mark Train, a Maryland commuter rail line, which failed after a contentious hearing. And now, the SNCF and its subsidiary, Keolis, wanted to bid on the Purple Line, a 16-mile light rail line that would connect Washington, D.C.'s northern suburbs. To win that contract, these companies would have to once again contend with the Maryland legislature and survivors, who weren't content with token gestures of acknowledgement. Now, their demand was explicit. Here's WJLA's coverage. Some Marylanders want the company providing trains for the Metro's Purple Line to pay up before it can do business in the state. In fact, they want the company to pay reparations to Holocaust survivors. That word, reparations, scares a lot of people, Leo included. His daughter, Edie Norton, recalls. There would be horrible comments about, oh, he's just a money grubber and... He probably drives a fancy car. So there was all this stuff that he had dealt with years earlier and it was coming back. Beyond the anti-Semitic tropes resurfacing, Leo also worried about bystanders getting caught in the legal crossfire. He thought there has to be accountability, but he had a real problem with holding a company accountable where it would affect people who were not the least bit involved. And he said, I don't want it to affect anybody's jobs, but he said, how can I not do it? There are so few of us left. Some people thought reparations might harm not just present-day SNCF employees, 
but also Jews in France more broadly. Here's historian Sarah Fetterman. France's anti-Semitism has kind of been there more palpably than in the U.S. in many ways. And the SNCF executives, too, said they had conversation with Jews over there who were saying, please help us drop this. It's not good for us in France. This is not to say that Leo shouldn't have done it. Still, the battle was too important. They had to continue. And in America, the SNCF and Keolis were meeting resistance at the state level, the federal level, and in the press. Here's former Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton, then chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us for this morning's hearing. It pains me to say that survivors of one of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century continue to uh, feel the pain of these lingering injustices stem from those who sought profit from the abuse of innocent victims and took advantage of circumstances to enrich themselves while others suffered. We will be addressing this morning justice for those who were transported to concentration camps by the French rail company SNCF. SNCF operated trains for profit. SNCF was paid per passenger per kilometer by the Nazis to move them to their deaths. The conditions in the trains were horrible. Passengers were forced to stand with virtually no food or water or without sanitary facilities. SNCF knew exactly how bad these conditions were because their employees cleaned the cars after they reached their destinations, removing the corpses of innocent victims who died during the journey. SNCF officials claimed that they were forced to do the things they did. That sounds familiar. And when Holocaust survivors in the United States brought a class action suit against this company, the rail company hit again. This time behind the Foreign Sovereignty Immunity Clause, claiming that SNCF is an instrument of the French government and should not be held liable. Think about how far these efforts had come. By fighting this war against the SNCF on multiple fronts, a once sleepy bill had gained enough traction to have a hearing in the House. The federal legislation to alter the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act now had over 50 co-sponsors in the House and 20 in the Senate. Now, the walls were really closing in on the SNCF. In early May of 2012, the French government reached out to the U.S. State Department to discuss potentially negotiating a settlement. I was sitting at my desk one day and I got a call. The guy on the other line said, you know, Mr. Prober, this is Stu Eisenstadt. I've been appointed by the State Department to come in as a special advisor to try to mediate a resolution to this case. Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt is the current chair of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and has quite literally negotiated every major Holocaust agreement in existence on behalf of the United States, totaling billions of dollars. There was perhaps no one in America more capable of managing a negotiation of this size. In this case, Ambassador Eisenstadt was negotiating nation to nation, U.S. to France, which meant that the SNCF as a corporation wouldn't have to pay a single penny to survivors. The French government said to us, you cannot negotiate with SNCF. You have to negotiate with us. This is a state-owned company. They do not have the legal right to do the negotiations. 
and any money that's paid will come out of the French Treasury, not out of their pocket. By this point, we have battles on three fronts. One is in Maryland, where people are demanding the SNCF pay reparations before bidding on the Purple Line contract. The second is in Congress, where the Holocaust Rail Justice Act, providing a day in court for SNCF victims, was gaining traction. The third battle, prompted by the other two, was the State Department's negotiation with France for a settlement, spearheaded by Eisenstadt. Harriet Taman knew Eisenstadt well. I had worked with Stewart in the settlement for the French banks, which was a decent settlement. And it became very obvious from the time we had our first meeting with him that this was going to be a different situation. He wanted a settlement, and we were not permitted to be in the room when he talked to the French. So we would talk to him and we would talk to his colleagues at state, and then they would meet with the French. In the French banks, we all sat in a room face to face and worked out the terms of a settlement. So essentially, when state was talking to the railroad, there was nobody representing the victims. If you're Taman in this situation, and you've worked on this issue for decades, representing a thousand survivors and their families, imagine how infuriating it would be to not even be in the room where it happens. To have to rely on someone else to do the right thing by you and your clients. He kept coming up with questions, wanting information, facts, names, numbers, which we provided enormous amounts of information. We broke down the client base by train numbers, by nationality, by ages, and we thought they were taking that seriously. Ambassador Eisenstadt's role as a negotiator meant that while the survivors were integral to the process, maintaining diplomacy was also a primary objective. He had to straddle both worlds. I had many, many, many meetings with them. I let them know what was happening. But I was not negotiating with them. I was negotiating with the French government. This tension between the interests of the State Department and the advocates for the survivors brings up a broader question. Were these negotiations about justice? Or were they about doing what was most politically expedient for both countries? Or was it some inextricable combination of the two? France was our first ally during the Revolutionary War. And so... We couldn't bend the process so much that we were advocates just for the survivors. We had to also be representatives of the bilateral relationship. When Eisenstadt worked with Taman during the French bank agreement in 2001, he had to engage in a delicate dance to balance lofty and yet disparate ideals of justice and diplomacy. We needed them on a lot of other issues. If you just isolate Holocaust issues, and you become such a ferocious advocate that you you try to bust the bank, and you push them into a corner, and you end up breaking up the negotiations, and you break up the relationship as well, then you haven't done your job. Those who suffered in the Holocaust have themselves very mixed views about how to perform justice about it. There are some, including Elie Wiesel, who are uncomfortable about monetizing it. 
When the Jewish Claims Conference was created in 1951, and the Luxembourg Agreement was negotiated between the fledgling state of Israel and the West German government in 1952, it caused an uproar in Israel. Menachem Begin, who was then head of the Herut Party in opposition, said, how can we accept money from people who have blood on their hands? There were literally riots outside the Knesset. In other words, the issue of the SNCF bidding on American contracts funded by taxpayer money might be new, but the question of how perpetrators of the Holocaust should repent was not. Almost every aspect of the negotiation came with complications, from philosophical to technical. One issue, above all, was extremely challenging. How do we deal with the fact that over these decades, so many survivors had died, so many spouses of survivors had died, so who would you be paying? The French were willing to cover those who survived the deportations the spouses of those survivors or those who were killed during the Holocaust. But it's been 50 years, now actually over 60 years, and we'll cover almost nobody because they will have died. And it's wholly unfair. While negotiating the settlement, the French also made it very clear that they didn't want to give non-French citizens more than French citizens received. This would include the American children and grandchildren of French survivors who had since died. So Eisenstadt tried to find a workaround. So we came up with kind of creative concept here, and we called it those, quote-unquote, standing in the shoes of those deported, that is, their states. And this was the key It's a clever solution. Family members who could demonstrate proof of nationality and evidence that their deceased loved one had been deported could stand in their shoes and claim some of their compensation. Essentially, if your ancestor had been deported and they were no longer alive to make a claim, you could do so on their behalf. Ambassador Eisenstadt flew to France on February 6, 2014 to pose the idea to the foreign ministry with Spirocino Thea, who was a wonderful negotiating partner, she wouldn't cover those people standing in their shoes. She said, no, we didn't do that with the French. We can't give more. And I said, you know, I've just made an overnight trip. I've got my bags right here in your room. I'm leaving. This will be the shortest negotiation I've ever done. If we can't cover and compensate for the fact that so many people have died, over the ensuing decades, then there's nothing to negotiate. You have to be willing to walk away from a negotiation. While all this was happening at the highest levels, Leo, Prober, and Taman had continued over the last few years to push back on the SNCF's attempt to build the Purple Line in Maryland. They had a hearing scheduled for March 10th at which Leo would testify. The SNCF showed no signs of backing down. Here's Rafi Prober again. And we were up against a you know global Fortune 250 company that was unleashing its resources against us with no exhaustion. You know, at times they were spending north of a million dollars a year lobbying against the survivors. 
All we wanted them to do was do the right thing and take responsibility for this and enter into a reasonable settlement and say, I'm sorry. It felt more and more like David and Goliath, except in this case, Goliath had corporate lawyers and David was tired. By this point, Leo was a 93-year-old man and had been through a lifetime of challenges. Also, his wife, Flo, had died in 2009, and Leo had never really been the same. And at a certain point, Leo was ready to rest. We went to pick him up, and um, his newspaper was still out. It was like 11 in the morning, and the chain was still on his door. So right away, we knew something had happened. I thought, oh my God, he fell down the steps. We couldn't get the door open, so we called paramedics, and they came with a, a chain cutter and went in, and he was in his bed. And he looked so peaceful. And I just saw this look of peace I hadn't seen on his face since my mother passed away. And I thought, you know, he's where he wants to be now. You know, you see somebody who's died from a heart attack or something, and you'll see this grimace or pain because that's how they died. He had like the slightest hint of a smile on his face. I tend to think that our bodies do something to reunite us in our minds with people that have left before us. And I just picture him being greeted by my mother and his mother and his sisters and all these relatives. Leo Bretholtz died on March 8, 2014, in Pikesville, Maryland. Pikesville man who took the dark years of the Holocaust and transformed it into a message of hope was laid to rest today and honored. At 93, Leo Bretholtz was an inspiration to many and a friend to us here at WBAL-TV. Reporter Deborah Wiener attended today's funeral, and she joins us live here in the studio. Deborah, I last spoke with Leo on Thursday on his 93rd birthday. He was looking forward to a Saturday meal with his children to celebrate, but he died peacefully in his sleep the night before. The last thing he told me was typically a slightly bawdy joke. That was the Leo I knew and the Leo so many loved. I knew that I loved him, you know, like a grandfather. I mean, he really had become like a member of my family. And I knew that, but I'm not sure I knew sort of how deep that was until that very moment. Leo Breckholz's death dramatizes why we have to cover those standing in the shoes of deportees and spouses. And I really said this. I said, let's take Leo Breckholz. You're telling me that he survived all these years and because he died, his heirs get nothing? And if he had survived another couple of weeks, he could have then recovered? There was a hearing in the Maryland legislature that Monday that Leo was supposed to be testifying at. And I just remember feeling like, how could we push forward? You know, this effort was his effort in large measure. I mean, there were hundreds of survivors and family members involved, but he was really the face of it and the heart of it. In the moment, I remember just feeling so overwhelmed that we and I had lost Leo and the world. How could we push this forward without him pushing us? For Rafi Prober, Leo's death stirs up more than just the loss of a grandfather figure, but also a mirror into his own family's history. He was raised in a household where his own parents were struggling to come to terms with the horrific details of their past. His mother, Sharon, had been kept in the dark as a child about her family's fate during the war. I knew precious little about my family. 
growing up, the ones in Lithuania, because it was just too painful for my father to talk about. While working on Leo's case, Prober realized his own story intersected with those he was hearing as an attorney. I was actually talking to my mom, and she said she doesn't remember this, but my uncle does, which is my grandfather crying himself to sleep every night in the aftermath of the war. And he was the most jovial, fun-loving character of a guy. You know, I think for him and, and for so many of these survivors, and I feel like for Leo as well, there was just a really dark corner for all of them that they went to more in private times and and didn't talk about as much or show people. I don't know if, if humor was a crutch for that and masking it with my grandfather, with Leo as well. But I know that for Leo, with his sisters and his mother, I, I could tell how heavy his heart was all the time. And yet, despite a heavy heart, Leo kept telling his story until the end. Even after Leo died, his story and legacy illuminated the exact reasons this fight was so important. And so the negotiations continued without the man who'd helped start it all. His spirit would keep the remaining players going. I always think of the woman who shook her cane at him and said, you must go so you can tell this story. I start crying when I talk about it now. Were there ever times when you felt like this was a labor of love, but that it may not have been the best thing for him? No, I think it, it, it invigorated him. It gave him purpose. He always went to schools and talked. This gave him a much bigger audience. Leo's story was mind-boggling and incredibly inspiring, as was the man, because he, he wasn't bitter. He was very funny. He would tell jokes like a stand-up comedian. They were absolutely filthy. They were hysterical. And we just we loved him. The priest and the rabbi and their neighbors, the church and the synagogue are a block away, and their friends, and in a not rich congregations, so they decide to buy a car together. So when they go to a function, a funeral, a wedding, whatever it is, a baptism or a bris, they can share the car. You buy this new car and the rabbi comes out and he sees the priest is there hosing down the car. He says, why are you doing this? It's a new car. Then after, no, no, I'm blessing it. I'm baptizing it. The next day the priest comes out and he sees the rabbi's cutting off the tailpipe. <laughs> Next time on Covering Their Tracks, the battle for justice reaches its culmination, even without Leo. Covering Their Tracks was hosted, reported, and researched by me, Matthew Slutsky. The series was written and produced by Courtney Hazlett, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, Eric Meyerson, Megan Lubin, and Chris Gonzalez. Editing, engineering, and mixing by Eric Meyerson, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. Our theme song, 
Tall Grass was composed and performed by Robert Berger. The version of Ose Shalom that you heard was performed by Peter Simpkins. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you to Blue Chalk Media, including Greg Moyer, Pam Hewling, Julianne Sato-Parker, Amy Polanski, and Mariko Fujinaka. Head to our show notes for more information about Tablet Podcasts or visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.